Hello friends, welcome, welcome back to The Overview Effect with James Perrin. This is my podcast where I have conversations with change makers, activists, humanitarians, environmentalists and many more and in today's case a meditation and dharma practitioner and author and a very, very deep thinker. Today's episode is from the fourth in a series of five live conversations as part of the Resilience and Regeneration Roadshow. This episode from the Ballina Leg with special guest and local Catherine Ingram. Now, keen listeners will remember Catherine from a previous episode of the show in which we spoke deeply on her essay called Facing Extinction. And if you listened to that episode, which I highly recommend you do, You'll recall her profound thoughts and reflections on our life as humans and the possibility, or as she says, the likelihood, that we may not be long for this planet. In that episode, she shares her wisdom on not what we must do, but how we must be. Not the things we should do to fix the situation, but how we must approach life. So in today's conversation... Catherine and I talk in more detail about what resilient and regenerative communities could and should look like, but not before facing some hard truths. And in the face of what feels like uncontrollable environmental and societal collapse, she asks, how do we manage our hearts and minds so that we don't collapse? We talk about the concept of resilience and how many people consider it to be this quite a rigid idea, you know, this idea of things going back to the way they were, back to how they used to be. And Catherine says that that's a symptom of our privilege. You know, we have these expectations of longevity and good health and lavish lifestyles and continued economic growth. We just expect the party to continue. She offers us a different definition of resilience, true resilience, which is one of being open to change and uncertainty. And that's offers us a very different lens through which to see the world, through which to say, what can we do? She says that when our expectations don't meet our reality, for example, facing ecological collapse, rather than thinking about how we can be individually resilient from any shocks, we must consider what can we give and contribute to our ever-changing world. This one as all conversations with Catherine, was deep and profound, and I just know you'll love it. So please enjoy this live conversation from the Ballina leg of the Resilience and Regeneration Roadshow with Catherine Ingram. It's a, a bit of a series of introductions here because now I have the pleasure of introducing our very special guest. Uh, but just quickly, I'd like to uh, just thank Ella and the Renew Fest and Resilient Byron team. So as, as Ella touched on, I've, I've been running this podcast all about um, nature and humanity and kind of big picture conversations for a while now. And I've had the pleasure to be invited to partner with them um, in support of these workshops and it's just been been incredible to be part of these community assemblies so I want to thank them and thank everyone here for turning up and participating today it's very special 
And I have the pleasure to um, sit here with Catherine again. Catherine has actually uh, been on my podcast before. We recorded a really wonderful in-depth episode at her, her home just up the road. And Catherine, forgive me for looking at my phone here, but I'm just going to quickly read out a abbreviated bio for you. So Catherine Ingram is an international Dharma teacher with communities in the US, Europe and Australia. Since 1992, she's held, she's led Dharma Dialogues, which are public events that encourage the intelligent use of awareness within one's personal life and in one's community. Catherine also leads numerous silent retreats each year in conjunction with Dharma Dialogues. A former journalist specialising in issues of consciousness and activism, Catherine is the author of books, quite a few books, including In the Footsteps of Gandhi, Conversations with Spiritual Social Activists, and Passionate Presence, Seven Qualities of Awakened Awareness. Since the 70s, Catherine has helped organise and direct institutions dedicated to meditation and self-inquiry, and more recently, human and animal rights. Please join me in welcoming Catherine Ingram. Hello, Catherine. I think it would be really wonderful, before I jump into question mode, I think it would be really wonderful if you can lead us in a few moments of silence and bringing us into the space. Sure. Okay. We'll take a few moments just to ground ourselves Take a few breaths, and you can breathe just normally. Don't have to manipulate your breath in any way. Maybe just listen to the sound of the ocean, the sound of my voice. Just phenomena rolling through your your awareness. feeling of breathing gently just arriving where you are thank you thank you Catherine Hmm. thank you James I would like to start with a, we're here to talk resilience and community and basically set the scene for us to workshop what we can do in this space um, shortly after this talk. But I'd like to first start by asking you for a bit of a personal story or perspective and so taking inspiration, the reason my, I talked before my show is called The Overview Effect. And really that's inspired by this experience that astronauts have when they go up into space and they look back on Earth from a distance and they feel this overwhelming sense of connection to nature and humanity. And uh, many of them describe it as this paradigm shift that stays with them for the rest of their lives. And I find that a real, really profound concept and source of inspiration for these conversations. So I'd like to ask you if you've had any moments or experiences in your life that have really shaped your perspective on the world. Well, in specific on the idea of resilience or the experience of resilience, um, I was just thinking about this the other day. 
um, hadn't really talked about it in a long time, but it's never far from my, my memory, which is I spent a year in British Columbia on a, at the time, remote island. It was two ferry rides. And the ferries didn't run often at all, like maybe twice a day, but two ferry rides to get to this two-dog two dog outpost town where you got so-called supplies. But on the island where I lived, it was... Um, it, it was people were just helping each other. It was people growing food. People, the local Indians who were known as the was the, the uh, Clamos or Clahos, I think was the name of the Indians there. Um, you know, you traded your baked bread for their salmon, and people had chickens and all kinds of. Uh, obviously, the ways that people used to live when they were in remote places, and I was there because I was running this, these programs. I was the program director of something called Hollyhock, which if people in, might know, um, they might know of the organization, organization in the U.S. called Esalen. This was the Esalen of Canada, um, whereby we sponsored, we would bring people from all the world to this tiny remote island and have fantastic week-long uh, workshops there. So... It was a way of life, living in the wild, hearing wolves at night, seeing minky whales in the day, and otters all scattered along our beaches. Um, we went often, I would go visit my friend down the way uh, by kayak. Um, it was just the easiest way to get there. <laughs> and um, so it, even though it was all that, you know, it was a long time ago, it was 84 to 85, the experience of that and the the imagery and the technicolor way that it lives in my memory um, is kind of unparalleled because it was really the only time I, in my life that I really lived mm. um, pretty off-grid and very remotely like that. Um, mm. But it it was such a beautiful way of life. And I think one of the things that people fear about when they think about the, the potential of collapse. And as I, as I wrote in a recent Echo article, you know, what happens when the trucks stop coming, you know? Um, just as if we had been told before, if we had been forewarned about the pandemic and told you're going to be locked down, you're going to be contained, you're not going to be flying around and so on, you might have had a lot more fear about it if you'd known in advance. But in fact, the lived experience of it, I'm not saying it was a walk in the park for many people, but, you know, obviously, and for certainly not for people who, who lost loved ones or died, um, but there, there wasn't the kind of trauma to the system for many of us that one might have thought in advance. So the point being that returning to simpler ways and I think that's what is going to be required in resilience is not something to fear that mm. there may be incredible jewels and ways of living and uh, quieter experience of life you know another thing I've noticed in this past year is people have been forced into a lot more contemplation and a lot more um, insight has arisen mm -hmm. uh, as a result. 
because we were just, I mean, as we all know, the speed that our modern life was going was unsustainable. Yeah. It, it, it's like a, if you spin a wheel fast enough, at some point it's going to break. And that's what it started to feel like to mm. me. This was like a, um, you know, what's that phrase that they're using these days? Uh, a circuit breaker. <laughs> yeah. yeah, well, that, that is an interesting point. We hear that, that brought up often, you know, and people go, well, if um, certainly in the environmental movement, there are people saying, well, if we can do what we did for COVID, we could do what we did for anything. It just takes us to galvanise together and it people are reflecting on that as a circuit breaker but I guess that's speaking on a deeper level to what you're talking about is people learning to have that kind of deep introspection introspection and reflection so you've spent a lifetime as in dharma practice mm. or in practicing observation and reflection and what's interesting about your work is that in your a lot of your journalism you've applied that those practices to outside the outside world, the environmental and social issues that we face. I think before we get into what can we do, I think it's important to feel the weight and the enormity of the moment. So can you tell us a bit about your perspectives on, for lack of a better word, the mega trends that you've observed over the last few decades of this observation and writing about and observing and being in that world of observing our our environment and our societal habits <laughs> um well in terms of the trajectories of the living planet it's just gotten worse and worse and worse every year of my life and in terms of the social unrest that also has gotten a lot worse um i probably many of you know, just in the last week we had two mass shootings in the U.S., but of course the daily shootings go, go on. Last year was the highest number of, of um, shootings for many decades. Um, I've just been reading about the food riots and skirmishes in Lebanon where their currency has collapsed. Um, I mean, you know, the oceans are, the fish are dying, the ice is melting, it's getting hotter and hotter, there's droughts and floods and mass migrations because people are literally in regions, millions of them are in regions where they can no longer grow food. There was a huge headline last year in the New York Times, this picture of this Guatemalan guy and the quote is, we can no longer grow food here. Right, that's true in so many places in the world now. Um, so that said, you know, I went to a talk last night by Richard Hill, which was really excellent. He's on the board of our organization, Resilient Byron, and um, really incredible. And, you know, he spoke a lot about the emotional response to this and the, uh, the need to find meaning in whatever ways you can be helpful, right? Just that's where we can find meaning. That's where we, we keep turning to just the love of our community and our friends. And I, I love what you just told me uh, before we started about your work that you just did in Tasmania, Saving a Rainforest. Um, 
are working to save a rainforest, you know, that these are the kinds of things that we can still do. Um, how it all plays out, who knows, really, but none of the trends are going our way in terms of long-term sustainability. They're going the opposite direction, and I think we're at 415 parts per million, per million now, which is higher than it has been for millions of years of carbon. And a lot of the, a lot of the emissions now are uh, things that are no longer in our control. We can talk or try to stop carbon emissions till the cows come home, but there's a lot of other stuff that's going into the atmosphere that's warming the atmosphere. And some of that is molecule for molecule far worse than carbon such as the methane, but also um, these gases, SF6 and nitrous oxide that's being used in the fertilizer. As, as the crops become harder to grow, they use more and more fertilizer so that nit nitrous oxide is ex escaping from there. These are very powerful greenhouse gases. And even water vapor, which mm. because of the warming of the oceans, the water vapor is holding in heat. So it's been... A, you know, I've been involved in activist circles, as you, as you mentioned, for a long, long time, and that was my focus as a journalist. And it's been a heartache a lot, you know, and I've known a lot of activists who have burned out in heartache and depression. So the trick is, we are living in a time where we're looking at some of the most difficult data and projections ever in history. Um, and people who are paying attention are starting to feel a lot of anxiety mm. and foreboding. How do we manage ourselves? How do we manage our minds and hearts so that we don't collapse, <laughs> right? Mm. And so that we keep offering everything we have to the greater good as we see it. Something I, that that makes me think of is I heard you recently talk about um, uncertainty and you, you spoke about, I guess, expectation versus reality. Mm. And perhaps if we go back to the example of um, the environmental activist movement and people feeling burnout, perhaps that burnout comes up because our expectations are not meeting reality. And... Um, even when they do meet reality and we have this semblance of control, um, perhaps that's just a coincidence <laughs> and when we were never actually in control in the first place. But in, in the weight of everything that you've just said, it, you know, these, these massive environmental trends, these social trends, things going in the wrong direction, is a lot of the weight that we're feeling just our expectation of it being in a different place. And if that's the case, what can then we do or how can we approach, what mentality can we have, mm. can we have to approach these issues that might offer us a different way of thinking? Yeah, I've been speaking a lot lately about the, um, almost the handicap of our privilege in that we have been, you know, tra-la-la going along in the lucky countries, right? having certain expectations that were actually reasonable for us to have for much of the last few decades at least. Um, 
you know, longevity and good health. Of course, anybody could get picked off at any time, but just as a general society, we, we expected the party to continue and, uh, and be pretty darn good by world standards, the top. So we have been cooked and reared and metabolized in these kinds of um, views and assumptions. So that, frankly, is another advantage of the pandemic, is that we came to a screeching halt, and a lot of our assumptions had to be readjusted, Mm. and we had to learn to let go and make do and do without, and not get to do, not get to run around the planet. And that, I think, has had quite a great advantage for us in terms of letting go. So to simplify this answer to you about that is I really suggest exercising your letting go muscle. (laughs) Let go more, right? Just let go more. And, And then you... There's also a requirement for courage, you know, to... There will be times when it's just, it's just damn hard, right? Or you see a piece of information. I'm, you know, I'm unfortunately <laughs> flooded in this kind of data, which just arrives in my inbox. And, you know, it's like Leonard Cohen said in one, one of his songs, look through the paper, makes you want to cry. It often comes to me, those, that, that line, you know, it's like you just want to you look at what's going on. And so it takes a kind of courage and brave-heartedness to stay steady and yet stay awake in it. And I also don't have any sense that people have to pay attention to it at this point. Like for some people, they, their system, their nervous system, really can't handle much of this. Mm. And fair enough. <laughs> the ones who can are watching it. So... Mm. When you when you talk about letting go of expectation, um, and I think about resilience and our concept of resilience, which is really the theme around what we're here for, I think many times when we hear the word resilience, uh, certainly this has happened with me before, it brings up this this concept of bouncing back to what to where things were. Mm-hmm. Um, we've even heard the term snapping back before, and for me, it's, it can feel that definition of resilience can feel quite rigid in our ways mm-hmm. you know being resilient means to be able to kind of withhold uh, or withstand a, a shock whereas I think the the perspective that you're offering here is that resilience can actually be being open to change and uncertainty and that offers us a very different lens through which to look at what we can then do right 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 I, I keep coming back to I mean you, you mentioned that line from Leonard Cohen before, which I think may be in your essay, um, or at least you've, you've quoted him in your essay, but there's another quote that I, I keep coming back to since reading your essay, um, which is, on the last day of Earth, I would want to plant a tree. Yeah, that was W.S. Merwin, but yeah, close mm. enough. They yeah. were, uh, <laughs> they were uh, both poets. <laughs> and I guess, can you explain or your perspective a little bit on what that quote means to you and I guess, as a, as a community that's focusing on resilience in our local community, mm-hmm. um, what that can look like. Because part of the resilience is not, that thing, like, not to think that you'll find some methodology where 
things will go your way, mm. but rather that you find an inner uh, flow that you go the way of things. That's the resilience, is that you start to have an acceptance running side by side with, because the more, like Richard said last night, which was so beautiful, because he, he, he understands the picture, in my opinion. He understands the darkest part of it. And yet, he says he's never felt more alive and more joyful, because what happens is you, something gets freed up in you when you're in battle with reality, and you're, and you're just hoping constantly it's going to change and this and that's going to fi- get fixed and so on. When that gets freed up, then you have a lot more energy for the task at hand, for the... Um, you also have a lot more clarity of view. You also see clearly because you're not all muddled with your hopes and dreams as being the main important thing. So... I have a new podcast that's actually just up this week called Resilience is in Letting Go. Mm. It's part of the resilience. People think sometimes that the resilience is about keeping things going and getting things back to how they were, right? Or some semblance, some new version, or some technological version. Mm. Um, I think there's a completely different frame of what real resilience is. And that is, it's going to require adaptation um, and, and letting go, like mm. I said. And it also makes me think of that, that concept of rigid resilience and keeping things the way they were is very, is coming from a place of, I guess, the self and the ego. What, mm-hmm. what's, what's going to stay the same for me? Right. Whereas I think this alternate definition, resilience is letting go, is actually letting go of what it is about you and resilience is going, what can I offer? What yes. can I contribute to? What can I give? What's my role in this? Yes. Which is a very different energy. Yes, and has inherent in it um, a lot of joy because you more and more feel that you're, you are in service to the greater good. Mm-hmm. And even though sometimes you have to take an incredibly firm stand to try to fight for that, and it, you know, it may seem that this is your personal um, need, when in fact you're just serving the greater good. And mm-hmm. yes, I've watched a lot of people um, stand firm in that over the years. I've known a lot of activists, as I said, and, and it's, it's more and more you just feel that's your job. Mm. And there is a certain surrender to that to that role, which feels good. Yeah, yeah, and I think that that's where perhaps someone like Richard is really drawing that energy when you can connect to that. Yeah, and yeah. even though you feel the weight of the moment, you are connected to something much bigger than yourself. Yes, and that's yes. where that energy comes from. Yeah, absolutely. And so for us in this room and here gathering as community to talk and workshop about resilience and community and what can we do what can we do and what kind of activities and conversations can we and should we be having okay this is just my opinion uh, obviously um i think we need to just focus on local projects um i think we can make a lot of mitigating difference in local 
projects, local areas, you know, save, save this field, save that rainforest, uh, you know, fight the developers. Um, I think that's where we can, you know, sort of tweak things in such a way that we'll make our lives at least, it'll buy time. Um, and I think that's what we've got now. I think we need to think about those kinds of ways of, I mean, to think about the huge picture, this juggernaut that is happening on so many levels with so much power and so much money and big media behind it. You know, that's, it'll drive you crazy, right? But to sort of go to Tasmania and do a run and be part of getting the, the word out about this rainforest, right? Mm. That has a chance. And that's what I feel, is that it's really local resilience now. Mm. And we're so lucky to live in a pretty conscious area, um, even though, as we can even see, the developers seem to win most of the time. But still, you know, we... we keep standing up for what we believe in yeah this this concept of local i think you're right is really important because it it allows our an appropriate level of focus mm-hmm. um yes especially when we're talking to environmental issues but then just before we we came up here we were talking about there's there's some research to suggest that you can only really fully have deep relationships with about 150 people. About that, that, that is about the right amount of people. And we don't see communities of 150 people anywhere in massive workplaces, in huge towns, in huge cities. Social media and the social, whole thing. Exactly, yeah. 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 Now we, we know thousands of people at surface level yes. rather than 150 people very deeply. Exactly. And 150 committed people can accomplish a lot. And I think that that's one of the hopes for these for these kinds of meetings is that we have neighbor meeting neighbor and you know really sharing information with each other. You know, we've seen these floods down south, right? Think about all those people in Moray, is that how you say it? Moray, Moray, Moray. Moray. Um, you know, all those people have nowhere to sleep. Where did they go, right? Did I, you know, if, if, if things like that start happening, wouldn't it be great if you had a whole long email list or phone list of your neighbors, who, you know, scattered about your shire, who have said, you know, I've got a spare room, if ever you need, you know, you, you've got it instantaneously, you're not going to be trying to get into a hotel that's booked, we have hardly any of those kind of spaces around here. And whatever the, whatever the issues may be, we can expect emergencies. And I know for myself, I feel safer when I feel community around me. Mm. Like when I know I've got friends nearby, even when I've lived in big cities and had lots of friends, I felt a certain inherent safety about that. Um, so we're very, very fortunate here to have people starting these very conversations, understanding 
and because you know um, nature has delivered us some messages in these last years very clearly to this continent, it's not theoretical, it's not a debate any longer, um, that you know, we can say to each other, yeah, we, we know things could get tough and it can happen really fast. So, mm. Yeah, yeah, and, and on that concept of safety and security, um, I guess going back to our old definition of resilience, and I think maybe all of us have had this thought before, I've certainly had this thought before, of getting a block of land and putting in water tanks and growing my own food and cutting myself, being self-sufficient and f- having that idea of safety and security manifest in that way. But that, again, is that old definition of me being able to be resilient, whereas what's you're talking about here of being safe and secure and wealthy within the community mm-hmm. um, is not how, mu- how much you can pay to have all the bells and whistles on your block of land. It's not having uh, hiring people or, or being able to pay for things to look after you. It's actually being held in that community and that safety and security comes from those relationships. Yeah, because we really will only be as safe as our community feels safe, right? Mm. There won't be a possibility, really, if things got very, very hard of just holding off somewhere and knowing that, you know, Mm. I mean, you need an army. I remember 25 years ago, I was visiting one of my friends on Maui, and he was was telling me about all the food he was growing, incredible range because of where he was on Maui. Maui actually has pretty much all the seasons on the one island, like all the different, not seasons, but all the different um, food-growing temperatures on the one island so it's incredible and he was about midway up anyway so he's telling me all of this and he was saying they could cu- they, they could just cut this island off altogether and we'd be fine and I said but do you have an army because <laughs> you're going to need an army <laughs> right so if you have if you live in a community that have been talking about these things thinking about these things making plans um, you know it's a great way to be together and I also think it's a very intelligent application of our attention. Mm. Catherine, I think your perspective and wisdom has set the scene beautifully for us to um, have, start having these conversations and build these connections here in this room today. Um, so I want to say thank you for sharing your perspective and wisdom mm. with us today. Um, and on a broader sense, thank you for your lifetime of work and communication and um, your practice that you've shared with the world. So thank you so much. Thank you so much for helping with these, with these conversations, James. You're, what you're doing in the world is really beautiful and will become more and more valuable as time goes, as more people hear about it. Thank you. Mm. Please join me in thanking Catherine Ingram. Mm.